Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast explores a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students looking at issues in South Africa, Africa and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject. And we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Nosipom Gomezulu. And my name is Mahita Ikani. And, and we're, we're your, your hosts. hosts. In today's episode, we develop our conversation about the place of the public university in society today and debates about how university-based research can be more inclusive by exploring the topic of community-engaged scholarship. Our guest, who's published widely on this issue, is Associate Professor Tanya Winkler. Tanya is an Associate Professor in the School of Architecture, Planning and Geomatics at the University of Cape Town. She is Deputy Dean of the Faculty of Engineering and the Built Environment. She's been at UCT since 2011 and has taught at the University of Sheffield and the University of the Witwatersrand prior to that. She completed her PhD in 2006 at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada and wrote on resident involved and led urban regeneration. And she's also worked as an urban design consultant and a municipal official in South Africa and Britain. Her current research interests include critically assessing the voice of the poor in urban policy and public decision-making processes, and critically assessing the role and value of community university engagements or service learning for the enhancement of teaching, learning, and knowledge production. She's also an editorial board member of Planning Theory, International Planning Studies, and Planning Theory and Practice. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show today, Tanya. My name is Lerado Magade. Um, I am a master's uh, student, a public health master's second year at, at Wits University, and I live around the Johannesburg area. For me, just for institutions to kind of reimagine, like how do people reimagine themselves in the community? Uh, initially, I didn't necessarily feel like Wits has a connection with its community. Uh, so I didn't kind of see that. But now, in retrospect, being part of the, the public health department at Wits University, um, I kind of see it through the school. So the medical school and the public health school work on different projects. For example, um, the public health school does a lot of work in Hillbro, uh, in the Johannesburg CBD, just in terms of like gender-based violence shelters, understanding the role of people from the diaspora and helping them kind of navigate their way, um, also showing them what facilities they have, and also things like um, youth projects, um, that kind of have an impact on, 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 on young people who find themselves living with their parents in the CBD, like in places like Hillbro, um, and how they navigate that and what they can use at their advantage. Because a huge part of the other people are foreign or people who are from like the rural areas. So today we're going to talk about university and community engagements. Tanya, you've published on this topic quite widely and you've thought about it for many years. So perhaps you can get us started by telling us what community-engaged research means to you. What's an important starting point for those of us who are new to this topic? 
Um, all right. Uh, I think for, for many years we're both aware of the fact that universities get accused of, um, of being these elite spaces in ivory towers and that often there's a lot of research that happens, but it has no immediate impact on the wider, on the wider community, on our wider communities, um, and in context in terms of the research that happens and how it gets applied. So I think, you know, it's been a, a long, a long time um, that universities have been accused of um, ignoring the needs in society. And so in the late 1990s, um, a group of scholars, prominently and particularly from the U.S., were calling on academics to reinvigorate their social contract or their social responsiveness, to step out of the ivory tower and to to in fact engage in teaching, learning and research that, that could and would have a, 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 a greater impact that, that could and, and would be slightly more relevant in an everyday setting. So, at the, you know, in the, in the 1990s and the 1980s, it was very much research around outreach or, or in fact, in, instead of thinking about community university engagements, it was kind of outreach work or volunteering, students volunteering their time. And it moved from that outreach voluntary kind of work to, um, to notions of service learning, particularly in um, faculties of health sciences, um, future graduates of the health sciences faculties, um, then engaging in, in service learning type activities and bringing that engagement in, into their curriculum. But there's been a lot of rethinking that it's not only for the health sciences faculty, that in fact there is a lot of work that can happen and, and useful work that can happen, research work, that is more about engaging and not just about service learning. So the notion that, that universities are the custodian of knowledge was then heavily challenged in the late 1990s and in the early noughties, and that universities are not the sole or even the primary source of knowledge, that in fact communities have a lot of their own knowledge, um, tacit knowledge, often referred to as communities' tacit knowledge, and that if we are serious about um, graduating students in the applied fields, that in fact there's lots to be learned in community with community. So the notion of engaged scholarship developed from there. Okay, so we're thinking here about different ways that universities can function as public institutions, right? It makes sense to me. Uh, from what I understand of, of what you've said so far, the idea of service learning seems important. And this, this idea that comes out as far as I understand from health sciences where newly qualified doctors and nurses have to actually give back in some way to the society that helped them to qualify. They have to go and work for a year or two to finalize their qualification. And in that way, they kind of pay back something um, to the community. So do you think there are opportunities for other disciplines to do similar kinds of community service? The thinking is also around not just only giving back, but in fact learning with community. So, for example, if you've got faculties of engineering and the built environment, there is a lot of work that, that happens in, in, in laboratories or that happens in the classroom. But in fact, that work then gets published in journals 
and it never sees the light of day in terms of implementation. So what we're hoping to do through Engage Scholarship is in fact working with non-academic constituencies in our cities and making sure that we're actually co-producing knowledge, that we're identifying community-based problems that are of relevance to communities themselves, rather than sort of knowledge that we as academics assume is what is needed alone or only. And, um, and faculties, I, I, would, I would argue that, um, that, that most faculties that, that engage in applied knowledge and, and implementation have a role to play. I find this distinction you've made between giving back and learning with a really useful framework, actually. But I'm also wondering a bit about the, the taking from, because a lot of academic research tends to take from communities in some way or another. We go and we do our research, we want to understand some complex aspect of social life. Speaking, of course, from a social sciences perspective, we, you know, we go to a particular community or location, we do interviews, we learn, we understand, and we take, and then we write and we publish. I wonder if this sense of learning with can break this sometimes exploitative relationship, not always exploitative, but often exploitative relationship that academics sometimes create with communities who are very often less privileged than those who are actually working in university settings. As academics or and researchers, um, there is this, this, this uh, problem, issue, around exploiting communities, around the academic or the student, gaining benefits from, from working and learning in community, and communities very seldom have any kind of benefit other than constantly having to entertain a group of university students, researchers, um, with, yeah, with, with, so what's, you know, what is the purpose of, uh, of, of facilitating this? And um, one approach, therefore, has been this, this, this notion to, to really push the idea of engaged scholarship and the, the and some of the values that are um, incorporated engaged scholarship include the notion of reciprocity and the notion of mutual learning so that in fact you are together with your community partner you are identifying um, a project as a group of researchers students with community led by community you're identifying um, a set of, of issues, a set of complexities that would be of use in a community. And that together, not only are you identifying the, the, the problem, you're also identifying so so what, what can be done and how can it be done. So the method of, of doing, and then of course, very importantly, how is information disseminated, how is information transferred, how do we make sure that it's not just a, for the benefit of, of staff or of students, that it's not just a, a teaching or learning tool, which is often the critiques launched against this kind of collaborative or, or, or kind of approaches, the more traditional approaches to research. So the engaged scholarship homology, if you like, or the methodology really focuses on making sure that there are some values that, that are embraced, and often those values include um, social justice, equity, supportive relationships, 
And as I've mentioned, the notion of reciprocity. And, and then um, power sharing. I think that, that is a, a big value that comes with engaged scholarship. And it, it's quite a difficult one for academics is to, to let go of being in control or the, the person who identifies the problem and comes up with solutions. It's, it's a real notion of power sharing, being led and being informed by community and around issues that are of concern to them. For, for applied disciplines, if we're thinking about our students, we would really love to encourage students or give students an experience that is based in the real world. I, and I use that word lightly. It's not as if um, I'm suggesting other, that, that other experiences in the classroom are not real world experiences. But for applied disciplines, if we're hoping to graduate future urban planners, future engineers, future architects, and that's, that's my discipline um, in city planners and urban planners, we would love to inspire our students to become reflective practitioners and practitioners who are better equipped with some of the unexpected problems and complexities of working in a real world rather than simply trying to come up with ideas in isolation or to come up with ideas that are hypothetical, hypothetical. So as I've mentioned, and I apologize for keep mentioning this, the, the values are really about exposing students to this notion of mutual learning and respect for diversity and to appreciate and respect local knowledge. To and, and in so doing, we hope, we hope that um, students also examine their own values, that they are exposed to everyday realities of living in our cities. Um, I think this podcast was, was titled University, as in city that we live in. And, and so it's, it's getting students out of the, the ivory tower, learning, sharing knowledge, and then coming up with um, outcomes that, that are of relevance. That's the pedagogical approach from academic standpoint. In terms of the kinds of values around participatory democracy, it's around respect, it's all the values that, that we, um, social justice, that we embrace. But of course, as you mentioned, there are a number of challenges. Challenges include access to communities, time. It takes a lot of time. And what's important here is that it, it's not something that can simply be slotted into a one, once or um, kind of studio-based project. That's We use the studio model as a means of teaching. And it's not just a once-off studio-based pro project and then that's that. Rather, it's about um, building and maintaining longer-term relationships and being active involved with community leaders, community residents, and um, and of course then we've got issues around making sure that it's not, that we also are accountable, and likewise the other way around that residents are equally accountable to the whole group, to everyone who's in this in this learning, sharing, building trust, transparency, accountability, and sustained engagement notions. Now, I, I started from the pedagogical standpoint of trying to expose students in case I was at WITS, I love WITS. I was at WITS and this is in the early 90s, no, sorry, late 90s and uh, 2000, 2001. And at the time, um, there was a lot of excitement in higher education policy documents around the role of engaged scholarship or service learning, as it was called then, for for, for, for the South African context, particularly for the South African context, where we were trying to make sure that, that we weren't just graduating folks who had no real understanding of everyday realities, difficulties. And in the policy circles, all of this kind of stuff, as you say, sounds beautiful, quite abstract. 
And a lot of the sort of more critical stuff never gets written about or hardly ever gets written about. You know, I, I, I was an insider. I lived in downtown Johannesburg. I lived in Bramfontein. We were working with residence associations and community groups in Hillbrow and Bramfontein. And many of our students were also residents in those neighborhoods. And on all, I've, I've been very fortunate because I've always um, been invited by community leaders to participate in, in projects. I think it's a little bit more difficult if you're not invited, but if you're invited, the challenges of entry slightly slightly less difficult. And being an insider also helped in terms of shared, shared goals, shared objectives. And a few years later, or many years later, I then joined UCT, and we were once again in Invited, but this time we were invited to an NGO, a non-government organization, that works specifically on development and that this particular NGO also works in community and in particular um, are with residents who live in informally, in informal settlements. And two in particular informal settlements are located in Gugaletu and residents were hoping to gain security of tenure. So two informal settlement uh, neighborhoods they're both peculiarly named Barcelona and Europe. And residents have been living in Barcelona and Europe since the early 1990s. Barcelona and Europe are located, fairly well located in, in the Cape Town metropolitan area. They're 15 kilometers away from the downtown CBD area and opposite the Cape Town International Airport. And when we were approached um, as a school of architecture, planning and geomatics, um, by the NGO, and the NGO acted as an intermediary, so to speak, there were a number of, of the challenges were already addressed in, in community university engagement. And those and those challenges I've, meant, I've mentioned before, it's around entry, time, making sure that the project lives beyond just a university timetabled experience, that there's accountability, and that it's it's not a once-off, that, in fact, lessons learned from one year are then taken into the second year. And, and residents originally approached us via the NGO around tenure security. So, so residents in both Barcelona and Europe um, have lived on the sites informally since the early 1990s. And um, they, you know, part of the, the upgrading of the informal settlements and part of the national housing policies is, in fact, not to move residents, is, in fact, to do in-situ upgrading. To do so, however, residents need to have some security that they're not going to be evicted from the land, that they are going to that this is home, this, this is their space, this is the right to a city. And um, and so we were told from the start that that, that that was the main priority for residents. To initiate such a project, I um, ordinarily, before sort of introducing students into projects, I spent a number of years with community-based organizations, um, establishing what it is that we need to do and also establishing rapport, trust, so that so that residents know who I am as a researcher and, and also working, often working very closely with the municipality because obviously things around your right to, to a piece of property has got to do with, with ownership rights, tenure rights, and the legislation actually does provide a number of options for, for residents. And in fact, the legislation, the upgrading of informal settlements policies, encourage in-situ upgrading. So we were invited, and the NGO with whom we work, they have an affiliation with an international organization called Shuck 
um, Slum Dwellers International. And the Cape Town-based affiliation is known as um, a CORC, the Community Organization Research Center. And, and so the difficulties of or the challenges of um, engagements or the challenges of service learning, as I've said, you know, that they, they, they were working with community before we were invited into the space. In fact, residents in both Barcelona and Europe had engaged in mapping their own neighborhoods, in identifying um, income, who was living where, um, for how long, and, and that self-enumeration had taken place. That's how the project started. I felt a sense of um, unease because I hadn't worked with the community or the community leaders in the past, and I hadn't worked, I mean, informal settlement upgrading is a particular area of urban planning that wasn't necessarily or wasn't until then my expertise, if you can use that word. I'd, prior to that, I had always worked in inner city neighborhoods and worked with inner city neighborhood groups um, in different parts of the world. And so we were invited and I, I did caution residents at the start of the project that, you know, this is what we can do, we can look at informal settlement upgrading, we can, and, and the sharing of knowledge is also sharing your rights, knowing your rights as a resident, knowing how we would go about doing this. But a, a gap, in fact, in our project, and this is, it's been an ongoing project since 2011, but the gap was that we didn't, we've not had municipal involvement, so the city of Cape Town was not really involved from the get-go. Whereas in other projects in Franschhoek, the municipality of Stellenbosch was involved and that was a slightly more successful, it's, it still is, both projects still happening. But the project in um, Barcelona and Europe, I would actually suggest that perhaps it's been less successful. In listening to you talk about spatial questions and questions of access to space, I, I want to call it geographical justice. Um, it makes me think a bit about how in South Africa in specific, our urban universities are quite literally cut off from the cities in which they're located. Um, thinking of the camp campus I'm sitting on right now, access is very strictly controlled. Visitors, both in cars and pedestrians, they have to sign in. It's not at all easy to get onto campus if you're in a wheelchair, for example. Um, and I'm really struck by the irony of the reality of how our urban universities are actually designed in quite a literal sense to function as ivory towers. It's hard to walk into a university library and go and look at a book if you're not a student with a student card or a staff member with a staff card. And I wonder what your thoughts on this kind of geographical boundary making or um, access control are um, as an urban planning expert. Our universities were designed as campuses and it, it followed this sort of this, this notion that a campus of higher education has to look like this and be like that and perform xyz and in the process we we actually as public institutions lost our sense of um of the, the social responsiveness function of a university that it's not just about teaching learning research but also this notion as you say giving back and social responsiveness and physically um, if you take a look at the design of our campuses, UCT is slightly different to BITS in that it is, isn't quite fenced off. But nonetheless, it's on, on the mountain, on the foot of Devil's Peak, and it's really difficult to access the space, um, whether one accesses it physically or whether one tries to access it, the, the knowledge, the knowledge production. And um, 
And it's not helping us that we don't have an integrated town and gown kind of idea. And even the notion of gown sounds so stuffy. And I think, I think, I, I, I wouldn't know, I've not, you know, but I, I think university towns, smaller university towns, have been a little bit better at, at, at being slightly more open or, or accessible. And so in terms of that, you know, for, for the projects that, that have been facilitated in our school and in our department, we it wasn't just a matter of, you know, um, students and researchers hanging out in, for example, Barcelona or Europe, but also, in fact, getting community leaders to come and hang out with us in our studio, in our classrooms, to to take courses on GIS, graphical information systems, to take to, to, that we facilitated to participate in our classroom spaces around planning law and planning legislation and acknowledging that. So if we're talking about reciprocity, it's not just the final product or, or then in the case of Barcelona and Europe securing tenure, which, by the way, has not happened and I'm not entirely sure it's going to happen in the very near future. And there were many reasons, but it was also an exchange of, of opening up our universities to non-traditional students, which is a horrible term. But for many, many reasons, folks in South Africa have not been able to access the university. And so how do we do that? And, and some of the thinking around engaged scholarship is is also also includes opening up the university and not only through continued professional development but opening it up only through exclusively through through um, public lectures but uh, but a real engagement so so being in a classroom and then in fact using our city our cities as spaces where we also learn where we learn together collectively I feel like if we're going to be thinking about community engagement and action research at a conceptual level and centering it in the scholarly work that we do, we need to renegotiate our idea of who's allowed onto campus to benefit from the teaching and learning we do. In, in my institution, we often get email circulars saying things like supervision is only allowed if a student is officially registered or that we have to make sure that only students registered for our course are in the classroom at the time of teaching. And this kind of thing makes me wonder if university managers have the same set of values as those scholars who are deeply committed to the idea of community-engaged research, um, or do they, they have a more kind of neoliberal sense of um, who is allowed to be part of university learning and who is not? You know, I think um, there is, in, as uh, resources for public institutions have dwindled over the years, um, I think it's a fine balance management, for want of a better description, that management has to um, negotiate. And on the one hand is making sure that there are, that there's a stream of income and that there are resources available. But at the same, at the on the other end of a spectrum, if there was a spectrum, is also ensuring that that we are reigniting our, our civic purpose, and so it does. It does really need um, a mind shift. It does really need a transformation. And and you know what we've learned in the last two years and and more from from students and from um, academics is that that we really need to decolonize our thinking and we need to rethink, transform our universities. How do we enable greater access? Can we? I mean. We have smart cities. Can't we use other means of of, of reaching out and bringing um, citizens, in the broadest terms, of, of a city to onto campus and vice versa? How do we get out of the the campus environment? Then, just to play devil's advocate, we have the scenario 
that you've just described where, in theory, anyone has the right to come and participate in the intellectual life of the university. So what then does the role of the university become? Does it not lose its unique identity as a place of higher learning? Does the university then become obsolete because the same purpose that it achieves can be fulfilled in a municipal library or a park or a town square? So I, I think it's maybe, um, maybe it's, it's not a matter of one or the other. Maybe it's a combination. Maybe, you know, I mean, so, so trying to understand balancing the needs of, of science or, or knowledge production that happens in a laboratory that's got important equipment that, um, that is dangerous if not, if one doesn't have any knowledge around chemical engineering, for example, and, and me mincing into um, a lab and, and, and simply starting to play with chemicals. And this is a stupid example, but, it's a, a matter of sort of balancing those needs, but also at the same time, how do we expose ourselves to something that is broader? And and I think one of the problems that we've been facing for the last hundred or so years, or certainly in the sort of history of South African universities, mm-hmm. is that we've become very siloed um, in our thinking and in our doing. And... And it is, it's very much, if you, if you can access it, if you've got a student card or a staff card and you're registered, then you're allowed to be here. Maybe it's taking it and not saying all education or all sort of purpose of a university needs to become this flat something, but maybe it can become something else. And it's, it's, that doesn't preclude more traditional forms of research or um, in the laboratories or wherever that, that research takes place. It's just about rethinking what it is that we do, while, of course, making sure that, that we don't lose, as you say, you know, what is the, what is the purpose of a university? It's to, it's to educate. That makes a lot of sense. And I really love the paradigm of action research, though I do recognize it may not be appropriate for all disciplines, right? Not all knowledge workers engage necessarily with communities, Some of us spend our time analyzing Instagram photos, speaking for myself, or historical archives or ancient poetry. Um, Although I suppose there is always some need to think about which communities might be linked with or affected by a particular research project. Because we've also been geared towards professionalizing everything. So whether one is in the law faculty or whether one is in health sciences, engineering in the built environment, you know, it's always a graduate with a particular set of skills. And then, of course, we have to answer to um, a number of professional bodies. So in order to graduate as an architect, you need to have skills A through to Z, and it must be like this, like this. It's a, a broader societal challenge for all of us to think about how, how, how we open this up. Yeah, and being idealistic. Now, on, on that, I, I must also say that, that um, years of doing this work, I, I do find that the, it's not sufficiently criticized. There isn't enough critical engagement with some of the things that can go wrong and, and often do go wrong. And so it's, it's bringing in the strengths that we have that we've, you know, we, we've been trained in a particular way to analyze, synthesize, to be critical. And so a lot of the action, participatory action research writings tends not to be as critical as it could and should be. So from your perspective, what are some of the pitfalls of action research? 
Is it possible that a researcher might become too engaged and lose critical distance? Could you sum up for us what kinds of weaknesses or challenges might exist for those who are working in this paradigm of community-engaged research? There are a few scholars in South Africa who have asked the hard question. So what exactly do residents of a community get from such a project? You know, and the, the Barcelona Europe project, you know, soon, soon after we started our engagement process, we, we learned that, that residents might wish to have security of tenure, but the land itself used to be used as um, a municipal uh, tip or um, for, for the disposal of, of, of waste. It was a waste disposal site. And it was used as a waste disposal site from the 1950s till the late 1980s. And then it was closed and it was neither sealed nor capped nor rehabilitated. The land is toxic. The um, methane is leaching into the Cape Flats aquifer. And as you know, we're, we're currently in a, in a terrible drought. And so we we moved our space, we got the various engineering groups involved and, and we did tests. And the methane is um, is worrying. As, as fire remains a worrying factor if you're living informally. You know, so some, some of the pitfalls is that you might have all the right values, ethics, all the sort of the, the respect for diversity and and come up with a problem identify a problem that residents didn't identify. I mean, residents were of the standpoint that, um, that methane was not a problem, that the toxic site was not a problem, that the site didn't need to be rehabilitated. In fact, m- many of the community leaders then started to suggest that perhaps that was simply a political ploy used by the municipality to justify evictions. And, and one can understand why that happens, because residents were saying to us, well, we've been living here for 20 years and we can't see any physical evidence of, of there being a problem. Of course, when you start developing the land and, you, and you're wanting to do informal um, settlement upgrading, in situ upgrading, and you're looking to provide services, infrastructure, um, you need to dig. You need to put those, those pipes into the ground. And you can't do that when you've got a, a toxic methane site. Pitfalls then is unexpected problems, unexpected findings. And how do you negotiate those? And again, the suggestion is always to build rapport and trust. And unfortunately, we didn't have that. Um, and and that, that takes years. It's not something that can happen in one semester. And then and, and continued trust, knowing that we are working in community with community. But then this opens up a whole different dynamic because now suddenly you're sort of um, fighting for the rights of residents, but at the expense of a a wider metropolitan issue to actually rehabilitate the land. And rehabilitating the land will cost, you know, we we had estimated in the millions of, of rands just to rehabilitate the land. And because the land is well located, it then starts to put, bring questions on how will the city, how will it, it recoup its, its, its finances of, of rehabilitating the land. And often residents and affordable housing gets marginalized. Naively buying into engaged scholarship is also a problem. So, so how then would you advise someone who has spent many, 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 many
many years kind of navigating these complexities and dealing with the ups and downs of, of, of an engaged research approach. How would you advise you know, scholars who are trying to think about how to open up their own research works in such a way as to connect more closely with the communities that they're researching that may be impacted by their research? Okay, so as someone who spent many years navigating all of these ups and downs um, and pros and cons and strengths and weaknesses of community-engaged scholarship, how would you advise someone who is keen to try and open up their research to become more engaged with communities, either the communities in which the research is located or those that might be affected? By the research. I've got maybe eight or so recommendations in most research. So I think the start is always to, to be aware of your own positionality as the researcher, to know, you know, to be aware of the fact of where you're coming from, your meanings, your interpretations, and, and why you're thinking from a particular space. And to be open to, to having that challenged, I think that is um, it's profound when when you accept that, um, and then actually learn from that. So I think that that would be the first the first standpoint, to recognise that, that that there are different interpretations of words like social justice, um, spatial justice, there are different interpretations, and that residents might have a completely different interpretation. Than, than than what we have, you know, than than what and and trying to get to the to the roots if you can. So language barriers need to need to be addressed. Um, if you can speak Isikosa in the Western Cape, um, and really understand what residents are talking about, what and then I've mentioned before is, is everything one does is question. Um, you know, don't lose our critical our critical abilities to question and to analyze and to try and do that with your community partner. So my first, so a very important step is actually identifying issues together and understanding the meaning of those issues together, identifying the process together. So what are we going to do and how are we going to do it? Identifying who's going to take responsibility for what and 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 how. And and then I think in my, in my field, in an urban planning field, it's a very long-term process. You know, upgrading someone's home, self-upgrading, it takes it takes time. So being aware of those time, those time constraints, those you know, because there's lots of legislation that needs to happen and approvals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then I suppose another another sort of recommendation is the hardest one because after our first attempt. In 2011, community leaders told us that they didn't really want to have much to do with UCT because of the the, the identification of methane, and they, they wanted to space from us. So we absolutely respected that. And in 2014, we were invited back. So it took two years, so three years, to be invited back. And on the second invitation, we we clearly stipulated, long before the students got involved, we clearly stipulated what was doable and what wasn't, identifying small interventions as well as larger interventions. Um, most folk are tired of talk shops, you know, just talk, 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 or a drawing that does nothing. Um, so what can, what small interventions can, can we do? And, and then also um, being aware of what, what are our limitations as a university? What are our limitations? Include the fact that the students are trainees. They are yet to be trained. They are in the process of being trained. 
So what are their limitations? You know, what what can one you know imagine from a from a, a university from a student, um, even if they are postgraduate students? You know, what 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 can they actually do? And a really difficult one to navigate because I I bring engaged scholarship not in only into research but also into teaching. It's part of the teaching learning model or, or thinking is to is to in fact manage students' expectations. We we have beautiful students who are who who tend to choose to study urban planning because they have a passion to to make a difference in the world. Um, and and so they have lots of bravado and excitement, but also knowing how to curb without uh, curbing that might be but how to, to manage what is doable, what is reasonable, you know, what what can you really do? And then a real difficulty for me on that score was um, getting students to to celebrate uncertainty. <laughs> students don't they can't cope with um, an uncertainty and unknown. What's the outcome of this? Um, they, <laughs> they, they, yeah. So so how do you how do you bring that into the pedagogy to learn learn to deal with uncertainty? learn to work through uncertainty and not to give up, not to become frustrated. So the lessons, you know, and then likewise with community partners, it's the same, the uncertainty. Okay, so we've discovered this. Now how do we tackle this? And then we move on to that. Um, and then finally, I, I, this might sound a bit repetitive, but good communication skills. As I said, language barriers are difficult and so good good communication skills and by that I mean not just only hearing the words or talking the talk but actually listening carefully deeply attentively because listening is an act of being attentive and 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 um, really sort of embodying embodying that listening is a skill that that all partners of a, of a collaboration, need to be willing to um, explore. But having a proactive, take-no-nonsense um, community partner is fantastic. So a partner who's willing to criticize you at any time is absolutely crucial. It's fantastic. It's important. And then to listen deeply to those critiques so that it really is community-led rather than, uh, you know, client or you know, sort of you know, trying to appease a client kind of thing. And 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 in addition to that, um, I would also suggest that um, you need political will. So in our field, um, you know, the few times where there have been some success stories to tell, it's because not only did we have a proactive, engaged community um, who who were willing to criticize and to, to design with us, to draw with us, to build models with us, but who were also willing to, um, to, to rethink and, and, we, and, and constantly one has to, it's an iterative process. There's no quick one fix solution, you know, so constantly being open to iterations, but then political will. And I think, I think that in, in, in the context of our cities, Having political buy-in and political will makes a huge difference. And then bringing the folk from the municipality into the partnership 
made made a huge difference um, for the project that we did with um, residents in in um, uh, in Stellenbosch. Also, uh, residents who are living informally, and in a project known as Langrich or a neighbourhood known as Langrich. So, so that political will really mattered. And then, from the academic standpoint, is to constantly don't shy away from admitting making mistakes and and wanting to learn from one's mistakes. I mean, to to share the difficulties. I think is a very important lesson. Those are words of wisdom indeed, um, and many many useful pieces of advice there. Um, thank you so much, Tanya, for sharing them with us and for the wonderful conversation about community-engaged research. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. My name is Kudzo Tsigane. I studied journalism at Rhodes University, the university currently known as Rhodes. I do definitely think that universities need to be cognizant of the communities that they are situated in. As a journalism student when I was studying at Rhodes, it was very apparent that a lot of our assignments and a lot of our tasks had to do with interviewing people. And obviously we were learning the skill of interviewing, but we had to interview real people in communities, and those communities are in the same community as the university. So you go there, it makes for interesting photographs, it makes for interesting case studies, but you don't stop and think that the university also needs to give back, that they can't just take, take and take in a community like that. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of WITS University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at WITS. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments, and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Research, scheduling, editing, and production was done by me, Simbarashe Wondem. Jagger Melkel created our jingles. Thank you.